Hello, and welcome to the LA Venture Podcast, where David Waxman and Minnie Ingersoll, partners and investors at 10110. We've watched Los Angeles grow from a sleepy tech backwater to a bustling mecca of startup opportunity. Through conversations with fellow investors and a few other special guests, we'll deliver an insider's view of the LA tech scene. On this episode, serial entrepreneur Eitan Elbaz amuses us with his random stories of bacon-wrapped suitcases full of money, how he managed to pick six unicorns as an angel investor, and the LA tech scene that he's been a part of for decades. I'm so excited to be here. I just heard that we have exactly zero followers, and uh, what can you do with that? You can you can tell so many stories. Well, welcome, Eitan Elbaz, always a critic. Um, our guest today, thank you so much for coming. Eitan, you're a venture partner at 10110. I am. You're a multiple-time founder. Yes. You're a very successful angel investor. That's kind. Welcome to the LA Venture Podcast. Thank you for having me in this room for the three of us to listen to this podcast. <laughs> Well, there might be a few others because ah. we're getting famous fast. We are going to have a few followers soon. Yes. Um, he always digs straight for the number. Yeah. Great. I love statistics. I love metrics. That's how you know whether to invest, right? You got your start at Applied Semantics. Tell us a little bit more about that experience. Uh, so Applied Semantics was actually my, my second job. Gosh, it was actually my third job after college. Uh, it was at the ripe old age of 25 when, when we started Applied Semantics. So I'd already been out in the, the world for a bit. And Gil and his, what became his co-founder, Adam, had been tossing around internet ideas probably for about six months before we, we came up with the idea of, hey, this thing's good enough to spend all of our time working on. And so you were part of the founding team. Yeah, I was part of the founding team of Applied Semantics. And Gil is Gil Elbaz, Gil, partner at 10110, your Gil, brother. Gil, my brother, CEO and founder of uh, Applied Semantics and Factual, legendary stock picker, uh, but you wouldn't know it by talking to him. Um, he doesn't brag much. He doesn't brag much. No. He's also a general partner at 10110. Yeah. Pretty he was running that. Google LA when I was at LA. I mean, I know you guys from 2003 when I was at Google and we acquired Applied Semantics, which I know was a great outcome and exit for you guys. Yeah. Um, I would like to think it was a great outcome and an exit yeah. for Google as well. <laughs> Good point. Good point. Um, uh, no, it was great all around, obviously, and now we're here together, so yeah. that was great too. Um, and for the record, what did I, Applied Semantics do, and why was it a great acquisition by Google? The interesting thing, Applied Semantics had eight separate products, but the product we were most known for is called AdSense, and AdSense would would uh, read a web page, find out what that web page was about, and would look for contextually related advertisements that would match that web page to try and increase the click-through rates. And it increased click-through rates a little bit, enough to make a big difference. And so Google bought that company for $102 million. In Google stock. Right. Mostly in Google stock. In 2002. 2003. Right. 2003. So, you know, a little later. So, but it was pre-IPO. Pre-IPO. And I've been told it was, at that point, over a percent of the company. That's right. So pretty good exit. Pretty good exit. <laughs> Congratulations on that on that success, and and you've had a bunch since. So, you do an interesting mix of things. You're you're you work with us as a venture partner. You still do angel investments on your own, and you're an operator of several different things. Tell us a little bit more about what you do in the day in the life of Aton. Yeah. So I like to take very active roles in startup companies. So I really like to get involved from. From day one, maybe it's a founder and idea, maybe it's a founder and two employees and idea, um, but but really small. And I like to focus on 
um, figuring out the right founder and uh, innovating on product, and then getting the initial seed funding together and getting the management team together. Those are the three things I really like to focus on. So this is someone who you knew before, or there's someone who's coming to you, and I mean, it sort of sounds studio model-ish in a way nowadays. Is that an incubator of one? Yeah, <laughs> it's an incubator of one. Um, I never thought about it this way. Uh, you know, you you meet people all all sorts of different ways. I like to be a guy who's out there. I like to be, go to networking events and generally talk to people and see what they have to say. Uh, and uh, you and know, now so, you're kind of known. Yeah, and now now a lot of deals come to me, so I'll, I'll often just get emails inbound, probably two or three deals a week that just show up on my desk, and sometimes they're interesting, and, and if they are, then I'll, I'll dig, and usually I'll dig, dig, dig a lot, and uh, and if, if it doesn't get kicked out, then then it was interesting enough to, to keep working on. Yeah, no, I sometimes think, okay, this deal could be interesting, except it's missing something, and maybe you're like, and what it's missing is me. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. I don't usually think about it that way. I, uh, I, um, one of the, one of the interesting things, I guess people always, I found that I really, really, um, really like to be kind of the number two guy at a company or the number three guy at a company. Number one has got this, this insane number of pressures, constant decisions and, uh, it's it's really a high stress job. Um, of course, you you reap the rewards as number one. You you probably have five times the equity of number two. Um, but you know sometimes you can be number two at, at multiple companies. And if these companies are somehow uh, tangentially related uh, and yet not a conflict, you can figure out how to build a mini little karitsu with your companies and figure out how they can help each other. And, and I feel like I've done that a bunch in my career as well. So like I know social native. Scopely. So like uh, those both sort of follow this model where you became some number two or some is part of your incubator of one sort of thing. Like, have you done this? You've done this a few times. Then. Done this a few times now. Um, so uh, Scopely, um, I'd, I'd known Walter for a couple of years. We were friends and we'd been, you know, he'd been, I, I think I'd been coming to the networking events and inviting Walter along because I thought he was an interesting guy and uh, seemed like he was, getting somewhere in his career and uh, he he you know he kind of he uh, he'd put forth the idea for Scopely at the end of 2010 and by this point I was I was kind of sold that I thought Walter would be a successful guy and at this point I think he'd been talking to one other co-founder at that point Ankur Balsara and so you know we he pitched me the idea for Scopely which is nothing really like what Scopely does today it, <laughs> it looked a bit more like more like a like a social friend dating meeting app, kind of more like like a like a Facebook version of Tinder that we worked on for about a year before hmm. we got to mobile games. But that's the idea we worked on, and and so it was the three of us for for a bit uh, who co-founded that company, and eventually added Eric Fudron, a, a fourth co-founder. Got it. Can you tell us about the what it was with ten thousand dollars wrapped in bacon? Yeah, and the spear. Yeah, this was. Um, this was this is a crazy idea out of Walter's head, um, that kind of innovated. There was there was an idea out there like how do we go and recruit engineers? We had to do some sort of we had to come up with some sort of gimmick. And what would that gimmick be? And the idea that Walter came up with was called the most interesting engineer in the world. We, <laughs> we registered the domain name the dash most dash interesting dash you know, uh, 
And if you Google this, I think you can still find a, uh, some pictures of me online literally holding a briefcase, a metal briefcase full of $11,000 of cash. That was 11. Physically wrapped in bacon. <laughs> um, and we also promised you all these other crazy things like a custom-made tuxedo, uh, an oil, a custom oil painting of yourself, and a crossbow. <laughs> a box of cigars. I think a lifetime supply of some beer, that kind of thing. Did it work? It did. We found like four engineers with this thing. And, uh, and uh, you know, one of them, you know, one of them got featured on TechCrunch with all of his prizes and awards. Oh, so there really is somebody walking around with a crossbow in a yeah. custom-made tuxedo carrying a bunch Mike of money. Mike Thomas, a, 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 an interesting redhead character who migrated to New York and was sort of destined to become the most interesting engineer in the world. Wow. Um, <laughs> really get back to in. Wow. <laughs> I was going to ask about your angel investing, but I just had to pause on, well, on the bacon wrap soup. Well, yeah. Are there any other uh, sort of foundings that you want to talk about? Found, uh, like? Let's see. Um, Social Native was an interesting one. So Social Native got pitched to me by a mutual friend. Hello, Eli Perlman. Um, and, uh, and Eli said, uh, hey, there's this guy who's working on this influencer marketing e-company. You should go and talk to him. And then I was, you know, I'd already seen, I'd already been pitched on 50 influencer marketing companies. And I was like, very quick email, like not interested. Thanks. Week later, Eli writes another email. Hey, you should talk to this guy, David, social native. They're doing this pretty neat stuff. And I wrote back, yeah, I heard you the first time. Not interested. <laughs> a week later, Eli writes back a third time. He's like, just meet the guy. You know, don't forget the business. And I was like, all right, third time, I'm going to go and meet the guy. And I met David Shadpour. And David came to the factual office, Avenue of the Stars. And um, he showed me his idea. And he was a very excitable guy. He was, like, very passionate about what he was doing. And uh, I basically was entertained by this meeting and uh, thought he was, you know, I was like, you know what? I, uh, I think you're a great entrepreneur. I think you're on, you know, sounds cool, not interested in your business. Good luck to you. And went about on my way. And I don't think I would have ever thought about it again. He ended up emailing me again and saying, hey, can we talk about the business? And I was like, you've got multiple problems with your business. Uh, first of all, first of all, you don't tell anyone that your, your, your Instagram ads are ads. And that's, that, I think that might even be illegal. And also, as soon as you start telling people they're ads, nobody's going to engage with your content because people don't want to be tricked into clicking on ads. And I think I gave him one other reason why this was a big no for me. And I left it at that and thought I'd, you know, I wouldn't talk to this guy again. Because usually when you tell someone no with a really strong email of like, no, and here are the reasons why, and I'm done, most people just don't have the, the stamina or the, the, the mental capacity to hear no again. Um, but David came back to me. He's like, I fixed everything already. Um, oh, I remember the third thing I told him is your business is just too small. It'll never be a big business. Um, and a week later, he's like, I fixed everything. I was like, you couldn't have fixed everything. He's like, no, I've been hashtagging ad on all the things, so I fixed that. And I've noticed that the engagement rate remained completely unchanged. So I've already fixed your first two problems, and the only thing I have to do is convince you that this is going to be a big business. And I was like, all right, let's have another meeting. Mm -hmm. I end up having two more meetings. David claims to this day, I th when he asked me later on um, how many times I said no to him, I thought the answer was four. He said, no, it was six. You told me you didn't want to invest in me six separate times. 
Um, but I finally got past all those no's and got comfortable writing the, the first check into Social Native. And you know, once I get comfortable writing a check, I, I'm the kind of guy who will tell all my friends like, this is it, let's do this deal. And you know, we right. quickly brought in a bunch of checks into the company. Including 10110, and it was one of your first moves as venture partner, uh, and it's a great, very successful company in our portfolio, so thanks. Yeah. But yeah. don't you worry that all of the founders that Aton has said no to are going to listen to this because they're going to uh, be listening to our podcast, and they're all going to come back five more times. Don't worry. We only have an audience of two or three, according to Aton. That's right. And how many of them can take no six times? Yeah. Well, you know, I found that actually when hiring you know, engineers or operations people, like normal people, when I say no, they then don't pursue when, when they're, you know, trying to get hired. But my sales team all did the same thing. They believe in like a 10 point drip campaign works. Yes. And they've seen it and they believe that no is just an opening yeah. because you actually replied. <laughs> I mean, I think of myself as a guy who will get, you know, who will take a couple no's, but, but wow, I mean, uh, some tenacity and grit to really keep taking it in because it, it's, it, I think it takes an emotional toll for a person to keep hearing that. No, it, it, it has to, right. It can't. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But isn't that fundraising generally? Like I, I know, um, you know, we went through a lot of fundraising rounds at shift. One of our rounds was particularly difficult and we got 50 no's and then someone was a huge check, you know, yeah. <laughs> but typically those are 50 no's from 50 different right. people or but it maybe 25. Actually, maybe it wasn't 50 <laughs> no's, maybe it was 20 no's, but it isn't actually better to hear no from 20 different, extremely smart, well-respected investors who think your company is not something they want to invest in. At least it was just like, it, actually 20 no's from one person might, might have been easier. Yeah, right. <laughs> Fair enough. Maybe it'll, maybe it'll feel less bad. Although that one person will think you're totally nutball crazy. Right. I am super interested, though, in just your process, if I could ask. I mean, just your process today. So you're also an angel investor. You don't yeah. always jump in as a, okay, and now I'm going to sort of become your your right-hand man number two or something. So I am interested in just your process of, like, how many deals. I think you said you still, someone will send you deals, like, two or three times a week. But, like, yeah. how do you, you know, do you actually decide who to take a meeting with based on, you know, people say there's a lot of gut to it. But what does that mean for you? Uh, God, there's a, there's a bunch of things that go into it and God, timing's a, timing's a really interesting. Like when you receive that email, when, who is, is like, were you busy that day or are you not busy that day? Uh, a, a good friend of mine mentions that, uh, he had a very, very, very early conversation with Evan at Snapchat and like around the seed and literally his child was crying in the back seat and he was like, Oh, I'll call you back. And you know, if, you know, it's maybe your child crying kept you out of Snapchat. Like, I, I think timing is really important. Um, but, you know, you, you take a, you, you glance at this email. Do they have something interesting there? Are there some cool metrics that they showed you? I love numbers. Um, you know, does the person have a little bit of a background that, that shows like he might be someone who's going to succeed? Did it come from somebody who you trust? Uh, you know, is it enough to, to take this to a phone call or to a meeting? And, you know, uh, vast majority of them you know you, you might not even respond to maybe maybe will respond a little bit and and see if if they they bit and they've got some a good answer to a question or two and you'll you'll go and you'll go and meet them how much do you feel like you have to be um to some degree an expert or at least familiar with the space because i feel like sometimes i get a pitch and i'm like oh my god i'm gonna have to work all weekend just to understand what this is about or something yeah i guess we've come over time 
And it's something I have to continually remind myself, even though I've learned it so many times. Don't fall in love with the product. Fall in love with the founder. Right. Don't fall in love with the product. Is that going to be boring if I repeat that? No, it's repeated again for me. Don't fall in love with the product. Fall in love with the founder because the product is going to change and the founder isn't. Yeah, but still, like the three of us all sit in meetings together where we talk about the product. I know. I know. And and because the product is important too. It, they're, they're both important. Here's the thing. A good founder probably found his way to a good product. So talking about the product is also in a way talking about the founder because you're talking about that founder's idea. And if you don't know the founder that well in the beginning, the one thing you know is that this founder is saying, I'm dedicating my life to this thing for the next three years. So that product is an embodiment of that founder. And that's why we examine the product. Yeah. And something I always say is that I don't need to be so expert that I understand as much as the founder knows. Yeah. I just need to understand enough to know that the founder knows what the founder's talking about. Yeah, that's right. So you don't always wait for stuff to come to you. I Notably, Oculus, I think you went after, right? Um, yeah, that's an interesting one. I, uh, I, uh, I have a group of friends who would go and watch football every Sunday. And football, I just, I didn't usually use my Sunday afternoons to go and watch football. It's just not my thing. But once a year, I would be like, I'm going to do it this time. And it was Barney's Beanery in West Hollywood. And that's where the game was. And probably eight minutes after getting there, everyone was really into the game and just doing that. And I remember thinking, I'm already bored. And I just literally sidled up next to the, the person next to me. I just, we just started chatting. And that person was Brendan E. Rebe. And we're explaining to each other, like, what we do and what do you do? What do you do? And like, I was like, yeah, I do games. Like, I kind of do games. I was like, and he's explaining to me what his thing is. And I was basically like, so it's like a 3D game thing? I had no idea what he was talking about. He, you can't explain the Oculus to someone who's never seen it because it doesn't make any sense. He said he's working on a 3D game thing. I said I'm working on a game company. And it was a really good chat. And we probably hung out for like 45 minutes. Um, didn't think about him again. Two months later, I'm at a hackathon that I was a judge at. And someone's putting this thing on their head. And there's a big line of people. But the kid kind of recognized me. He goes, Aton, you want to try it? And I was like, yeah, I want to try whatever that thing is. And I put it on. And the moment I put that device on is a moment I will never forget. Because it was so, it was so crazy to me what what was happening. What world were you in or what? It was, it was the Italy. It was the Southern Italy one. It was the first Oculus DK one. You know, you're in Italy and you're looking around and you're, you know, you're outside in the castle and it's sunny outside. And you feel like you're there. Yeah. You're just, you're there. And I was just so taken aback by this thing. And so you love the product, love the product, love the product. But, but let's, let's dig into why I wrote the check. Um, Got to LinkedIn on, as soon as I got to LinkedIn, found this guy, Brendan, the founder and CEO of Oculus, and sent him a message like, hey, do you remember we met two months ago in a bar? I just tried Oculus. It's the most insane thing I've ever seen. He responded pretty quickly. He's like, yeah, of course. What's going on? And we ended up making a deal. And I was like, I'll angel invest in your company if you angel invest in mine. It's <laughs> um, funny. And it was kind of, we had a gentleman's bet of like, who's going to, who's going to win the bet of like who can make who more money. And so I guess he ended up winning the bet. What was your company? Scopely. Okay. But for now. Right. But right. So you know what? The truth is there's a chance 
depending on when when or if you sold your Facebook stock, okay, maybe just talk about at the transaction. Yeah. Um, so anyway, uh, uh, yeah, we decided to exchange checks into each other's companies. Um, and he did give me a little bit of background on Oculus at that point. And one of the most insane things was at that point, they'd already pre-sold $10 million worth of Oculus sets. I didn't feel like it was a seed bet anymore. It was like, this is a Series A company who's selling hardware, which is the hardest thing in the world to do. They've already built it. They're already selling it. And so uh, it didn't even feel like, uh, it didn't even feel like a, a, a high-risk seed bet at that point. I know you're interested in AR, VR. Yeah. Uh, but I heard you say one thing which I really liked, and you and I have never talked about it, but you said something like, most people will remember the first time they put on a VR headset or stepped into virtual reality, yes. right? And well, like for me, no, I, I so clearly yeah. remember the first time. Like it was, I was the front row seats of a boxing match, mm -hmm. and it was one of those where like you saw the punch like hit the guy's face, and you heard it, right? Yes. You heard the surround sound, and you heard the whole crowds, you know, going wild. Was it an alive or an animated? Uh, live, like right. oh yeah, no, it the was. People. You were right there, yes. front row seats, and it was a real match. And I was like, I would never watch sports. Like, can I watch yeah. every sporting event in I, front row seats? I can't wa wa wait to watch NBA games like this. And absolutely, it's and gonna be so cool yeah so let's talk about that for a second because oculus ended up being a great bet for you as an angel investor yeah but the oculus trajectory didn't go as most people planned i still think that it's going to happen i still think i still think the same way you see a million kids holding their cell phones and they cannot put them down it will we'll get there we'll get there with vr a million kids with a with a ski mask on their head yeah i mean they, they won't necessarily mask. be doing it out. You won't necessarily be doing it in all the same places. But as far as the time you spend, there are going to be tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of people who spend multiple hours a day in VR just a few years from now. Every day. What do you think needs to happen? I mean, all, all kinds of For things. For that to come so, the, the device has to be cheap. It has to make you not get sick or feel uh, nauseous. It has to, um, it has to have a lot of great content for it. Um, it has to provide you with social hooks that don't make you feel totally alone in there. Like, make sure that you feel like you're in there with people because one of the reasons we hang out on Facebook and Instagram, we feel like we're surrounded by people, and so that there's no apps that there's very few apps that actually that really do that today. There's there are a couple attempts, um, but you know it, it's all too early. So all these things need to come together in a hit, and they they eventually will. What about things that are different, just like what we were just talking about, which is anytime I want to decide whether I want to travel to Italy or yeah. um, I, I saw one that was the streets of China at one point, and I felt like I was on a really busy street in some I forget you know Chinese city which I'd never been to. So like there's different interesting applications. Just, I want to see every yeah. you know I want to be front row seats to every sporting match I watch. I I um I have this one sort of effed up one I think about sometimes, and that is don't say porn. <laughs> no, I mean, that, that one's the obvious one. Um, I think there are experiences right now where people in general have, people lack tolerance, understanding of other people and develop hate and so forth because they can never put each themselves into other people's shoes. This is going to be a great opportunity for people to put each other, selves in each other's shoes. What would it feel like to be incarcerated? What would it feel like to be in jail or in prison or in solitary confinement? And maybe put someone in there for a little while 
maybe a potential offender and put them in there for a while and see what it feels like. And, uh, or maybe you're homeless. What does it feel like to be homeless? What if you had to spend all night on a street? Or obviously you don't feel the danger there, but you're going to feel some of it. Um, you know, hungry or poor or like, how do you go and try to sort of drive empathy into people who have problems feeling it because they don't, they just can't wear those shoes. And I think, I think there's like a lot of good you can do psychologically and, and, and for mankind to just do that kind of like that stuff. One thing about that idea is an idea of empathy. And that seems to be something that runs through pretty much everything you do. And you just wrote a, a really interesting blog piece about, about being empathetic as an investor. You want to talk about that a little? Yeah, I think, uh, um, I think that in general, uh, well, investors are sort of, you know, your job is to buy low and sell high. That's, that's literally what your job is to do. And to do that, oftentimes you have to make decisions that are, you know, might be callous to a founder or, you know, to an employee or, 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 or something like that. And, you know, I don't, I don't totally subscribe to it's the most important thing in the world to absolutely maximize every dollar in the favor in, in the face of ensuring that the human is, feels good at the end of the day. Like, like there's a real, there's a value to people feeling good. And we don't really quantify that in, in a, in a, in a, pro forma PL statement at the end of a quarter, but it's there. And so for me, I think it's, I think back to my experiences at Applied Semantics where there were a couple times that investors did things that were really, really painful to us and almost like for no reason, just, I mean, they probably had a reason. They probably thought this was a path to make money, but that they didn't, they didn't take into account that on the other end were, were, you know, a few, a few people who spent all of their waking hours trying everything they could do to build a company and being treated poorly or talked too harshly or been given in unfavorable terms when their company wasn't doing well wasn't the solution to our problems. We needed, call it, not a parent. We had, you know, you have someone to say, don't worry, it's going to be okay. That's, that's not what we needed. We needed a mature business person to say, Hey, we're going to help you solve your way through your business problems. And that's not what we got from our investors. And that'll stick with me forever. And so when I got to be on the other side of the table and be an investor, I knew I wanted to lead with empathy more than anything else. And so I often tell um, founders that you're inevitably going to get to a place where it's going to be your worst day where you want to quit or you think the company's already dead or you want to cry or you want to punch someone or you want to punch yourself and call me on that day. Call me that day and I'll do my best to try to help you through the problem. And if I can't help you through the problem, I'll just be there to give you a hug. You've invested in a a number of unicorns. Thirty-seven. Oh no, no, no! Unicorns. Thirty-seven. Oh, ching. Thirty-seven angel investments, and I think, think we're at five unicorns. Dude. I think. Wow, that's like a. Is that a herd of unicorns? Uh, uh, I was gonna say a quiver. Uh, right. A quiver is okay. A, a quiver. Yeah. <laughs> a quiver. So, which can you name them? Scopely, Oculus, FabFitFun. Climate Corp. Climate Corporation. Thank um, you. 
and and bird. That's incredible. And you've done 37 investments. So my question a bit was going to be like looking at the really successful ones. Let's start there. Did, when you met the founders, were you like, I know this is a success? I mean, obviously, or have you thought that in 37 instances? No, no, <laughs> I, I definitely, you don't know the winners. And I, I, I guess I've heard anecdotally that, that, uh, that Chris Saka didn't know that, uh, that Uber was going to be any bit of a winner. David Friedberg, right. remember David? Yep. Um, knew him at Google. I just, all I knew about David was we always had good conversations. He was a smart guy. And I knew that he was leaving on the table two years worth of stock options to do this thing. Mm. He explained the thing and it sounded interesting, but I didn't know unicorn or not. Uh, but I was just, that was the, I think that was the reason I wrote this check. David's like, I'm leaving. I even asked him, I was like, wait, I'm just taking a rough guess. You don't have to tell me how many stock options you're leaving on the table. So I was like, I think you're leaving this many seven figures on the table. And he kind of shrugged like, eh, probably. And I was like, to do this thing. I was like, all right, then I'm in. That was it for mm. me. Uh, that was the, and I had no idea it would be a unicorn. And I think um, the way that business actually worked, I, I, I think a lot of his success was towards the final, the, the, the back 25% of that company. I mean, they, they went through a couple little things that didn't, didn't exactly work at first. So, uh, but he kept, he was a great fundraiser and he kept going and finally nailed it. Um, and so do you think, right. So there are times there where you're like, okay, maybe this isn't going to be a success. Maybe it is. Um, um also the FabFitFun guys, uh, you know, I knew the Brooking brothers for a while, such like such sweet guys. And, uh, um, you know, I, I known, you know, I'd known them for in probably Danny a bit better for a few years and he'd been kind of toiling on this idea. It was basically a newsletter, basically a, an ad supported newsletter, which is not an interesting business at all. And, um, Mikey had been working at Beachmint. He's like, Hey, Beachmint's going to, you know, meet this newsletter and we're going to turn the newsletter into a subscription product. And I was, by this point I'd already heard Beachmint already pretty much failed. And I was like, kinda, maybe, um, and here was, here's my story of why I invested in Danny Brukeem. It was not the box idea. I'd already seen him work on the newsletter for a while. I wasn't, we were playing basketball one night and his car was locked in a, was locked inside a parking lot. And the only way for him to get out of this parking lot was to drive over a curb. And the curb was, it was a, not like, it was like a halfway curb. And Danny had a decent, nice car. He was like, I'm not driving over that curb. And I was like, well, there's no other way out of here. He goes, there's a way out of here. I was like, and we, we walked all over the place and we were, he's yelling like, I need to get out of this parking lot. I got to get out of this parking lot. And finally a maintenance guy goes, he's like, dude, there's nobody here. This car's locked. If you want to get your car tomorrow, you can do that. Or you can drive over that curb. Those are your two options. Daniel looked at him for a second. It was just parking lot. I'm trying to get out of this parking lot. I'm trying to get just... Just look at this guy. I'm not accepting either of your options. I've already processed that. I'm already like, Daniel, let's just drive over the curb, man. He's like, no. And he yelled and screamed until some other guy showed up. He's like, what? What? Fine. I can open the, yes, I can open this lock. Yes, I have a key. And it turns out there was a key to open up this lock to get Danny's car out of this parking lot. And I was like, this guy's got grit. He's not going to take no for an answer. He God, I wish you had told me that story back when I passed on the company because I was looking at and yet, you the know product what? instead of the people. You know what? It's still you remember these stories in retrospect. That sure. was the story, but you also do. 
If it failed, I'm sure I'd pick out some story about Danny Brookham that I, you know, <laughs> some other story. But that's the story that stuck with me, and that's what got me in. It, not, not the box. Because I looked at that company and, yeah. I, and I saw a box in a space full of boxes. and There's a hundred box companies. Yeah. I, Most of them. Top 10 box lists for that vertical. N no, nobody else won. Nobody else won a box company. Do you think you've changed uh, over the course of your 37 investments? Like, Do you think you've changed what you look for? It's interesting. I actually just looked through the list and I kind of went through the... I think I got better over time. I think I had less losers. I had, I had more losers up front. Um I got just swept away with cool, fun ideas early up on mm. a cool, fun idea. I'd just be like, I'm in, um, you know, I was pretty, this is the product now kind of thing. Like this product's not going to change and was paid less attention to the founder. And, uh, I think my earlier bets were, were less good. Um, I think we, like we were talking about, yeah, five unicorns out of 37, that's pretty incredible. And if you were a fund, that would be a really, you'd have incredible returns. Um, and I think you said something kind of self-deprecating, like it's actually a little easier as an angel. I think it is. I really think it is. There's Angels have a couple of... Um, you don't have dead weight like us yeah. <laughs> hanging around your shoulder? <laughs> you, you, so how many VCs can get into a Series A? Like one, maybe two. Right. How many angels can get into a Series A? Like 10 or 15. Hmm. So you have like 10 or 15 shots to get one small check-in versus one or two shots to get a big check-in. There's just more spots for an angel. Number two, you don't all, if you want to be the fund, you have to have a conviction to get a term sheet out there first. Like, I want to be the guy. Here's my term sheet. I believe in you. Angel, oftentimes, you can hang around the hoop. You can be like, hey, I think this is cool. I think mm. this is cool. They're like, oh, we got a term sheet. Like, cool, cool. How's that going? How's that term sheet going? You've got like a month. Yeah. To be like, oh, how are, your, how are the metrics? How's it going? I, 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 are, are you in? Uh, you still have the term sheet? How are the metrics? Okay, I'm in. <laughs> like, <laughs> like it. the, it's like, oh, that term sheet fell. Mm, yeah, yeah, okay. So you, you get to play that game a little more. And you don't intend to play the game like that's not the goal. But it just happens because... They're like, they'll be like, oh, the docs aren't ready yet. The docs aren't ready yet. Just hang tight. And during hang tight, you might as well ask, how are you guys doing? And that can give you, you know, a little extra visibility as to is it going well or is it not going well? And sometimes that month you might change your mind one way or the other. Can we go into the random personal questions? Sure. This is a section of our, Let's our do questions some random sheet. personal questions. Uh, Boxer briefs. Yeah. Um, if you'd care to answer that. No, I was going to ask about advice that you give or, or don't agree with. Um, can I ask about advice giving? Okay. Okay. There's kind of three dimensions of this. Uh, advice that you find yourself giving a lot. How about I'll start there. Or advice that you hear people giving, like that VCs are always giving that you don't agree with. Or advice that you give yourself? It's a multi-part question. Um, I There's two things I always tell to like people who are trying to build their career. And that is, I, I have, I'm not a fan of the MBA. And if you're going to get one, you better have a really, really good reason. Explain to me why you're getting this MBA. If you cannot come up with a really good reason, don't get that degree. That's one. Yeah, I, I have my MBA. Which is <laughs> I do think the world was different. Um, I do think the world was different 20 years ago. <laughs> well, in, in 2000, when, when, I went right. So 19 years ago? So I IPO'd. We, 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 my first company IPO'd in March of 2000. And then we were going to have layoffs. And I went to business school in 2000 right after our IPO. because Great was all, time to go to business school. It was school. a good time. It was fun. I know a lot of people who took that hiatus or 2008 to go to business school. It was B2B. It was back to, back to banking or back to business school. Yeah, I... Um, 
I've actually thought about that one because uh, I, I I wrote that question down um, in a in an article I did called Seven Lessons I Learned from Applied Semantics Ten Years After the Acquisitions and this you know the number seven thing I learned and what I would tell myself is forgive yourself you're doing the best that you know how and things will get better and they'll get worse repeatedly so get used to that and. I think I would really take things too hard and it was really, I would, I would take an emotional toll on me. It's my personality to sort of get really, really excited about things and also to get really down when things are bad. And, you know, uh, it, it, it can take a toll. And so, um, you know, I think as a 26 year old going through that, I wasn't as prepared as I might be now to handle that kind of stuff. And so, uh, I, you know, tell myself to chill out. It's going to be okay. And maybe it won't even be okay, but that's also okay. Thank you for listening to LA Venture. If you enjoyed the show, please feel free to rate and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. It makes a big difference in helping others find the podcast. For more information on 10110 Ventures, please visit 10110.net. 